Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Welcome to episode 17. This week, we're going to talk about things that I have um, done wrong, basically, yes. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about propane tanks. That doesn't get a whole lot of attention. We'll have a product review of window socks, which maybe isn't what it sounds like. And we're going to talk about a really cool place to visit in Maine. Uh, once we're allowed to actually visit places again. So let's go. First, folks, welcome back. I'm sorry this episode's a couple days late. I have recently accepted a temporary contract position with Team Rubicon, the disaster response nonprofit that I uh, volunteer for and now work for temporarily. And it has been taking up a lot of my hours. So it's been difficult to fit in some time to record this, but here I am, and let's get going. Uh, first, I have to start with an apology to Sasha from last week. Sasha is, in fact, a man. He's also a very nice guy and does not take offense if somebody misgenders him, like I did, so I apologize for that. As a reminder, if you are looking for COVID-19 information, the best source I have found for van life folks is at vanlifers.co. That's V-A-N-L-I-F-E-R-S. Dot co. Go there, you'll see a link right at the top, coronavirus help for full-time dweller. And Sacha, Sasha, I'm sorry, who is actually running this site, is keeping up to date on things, where you can go, where you can't go, where you can get resources, so go there. But that's really all I'm going to say about COVID-19, because I, I think we also need to maintain a bit of normalcy here and talk about the things we were always going to talk about. So let's get right into mistakes I made during my van build. To start with, I am not skilled. <laughs> I'm not a carpenter. I'm not an electrician. Um, I don't know how to weld. And I can't measure to save my butt. I mean, I am the worst person with a tape measure you have ever seen. I absolutely subscribe to the methodology that you should measure twice and cut four times and then throw it away because it's too short, get a new piece and start all over and just keep cutting until eventually it kind of fits in there and you might have to take a hammer and kind of squish it in there. That's kind of how I do stuff. Uh, it's not the best way to be, but it demonstrates a principle of van life, I think, that is... You can compensate for lack of skill or talent and lack of money with sheer determination. Determination I had, but because I'm not so skilled and not all that great at planning, I made a bunch of mistakes during my van build. So I thought I would share those mistakes with you so that you could maybe not make those mistakes or at least recognize them when you actually do. The first mistake I made was wire gauges. I talked about wire gauges a couple episodes ago, and basically the concept is is that the thinner your wire, the more voltage you lose over distance. So if you have a, a high draw device, something that's using a lot of amps, that's generally something that makes heat, you're going to want to have a short, thick wire. And if you have something that doesn't use a lot of power, you can get away with a long, thin wire. So when I was doing the thing that everybody does and making my Amazon wish list and all the things, I found this nice big spool of 18-gauge wire. It's like 100 feet, and I bought that, and that was my standard wire for the van. Well, 18-gauge wire is okay for some things and not so good for other things. It's fine for the lights, and then, in fact, the lights, the, the pigtails, the little wires that come with the lights, they were 18-gauge at best. They might have even been 20-gauge. They were really thin. So that wasn't a big problem. 
but I have an outlet. I have a 12-volt socket and a 12-volt meter with a switch mounted on the wall of my van, maybe four feet worth of wire from the batteries. 18-gauge is just way, way too small for that. And the problem is, is that that wire is now embedded in the van. It's underneath the floor and inside the wall, and replacing it would be a major pain in the butt. So I really wish I had run a much, much thicker wire there. Um, you know, something like 10-gauge at least, or, or even smaller. Another thing I did that was fairly, fairly stupid... My, my ceiling is one piece. I took a piece of beadboard paneling and cut it to the size of the ceiling and just kind of stuck it up there. I mean, it's insulated and stuff, but the finish work is just a big piece of beadboard paneling. And I forgot to mark where the joists were, or the ribs. They're not really joists, but you know what I mean. The ribs, the, the structural part of the roof where you're going to screw this piece into. So what happened was I got it up there... And I couldn't figure out where to screw it in because the insulation covered the joists or the, the ribs. I'll use the right term. It's ribs. So before you put on your ceiling, make sure that on your walls you have marked where it's okay to screw into. Now, I know some people will say, oh, no, don't ever screw into any metal parts. That's fine. If you want to go to the effort of making wooden sister boards to go around those ribs and drill into those or, or however you want to do that, that's fine. I am in an old van and I don't mind drilling holes through the metal parts. So I was fine with just drilling straight into the ribs. And the ribs were insulated, by the way. They were filled with spray foam, so there wasn't really much risk of rust or anything like that. But that was annoying and just very difficult. Plus, I built the entire van by myself. At no time did I have an extra pair of hands to help me. And putting up the ceiling without an extra pair of hands is really a big pain in the butt. I ended up having big bamboo sticks that I kind of stuck up to hold up the ceiling in places. It was difficult. So I would recommend you do something better. In fact, honestly, I think the single piece ceiling is probably not the way to go. I think doing some sort of boards where you can remove some and put some up and adjust a lot makes a lot more sense. Because I have to take that whole thing down if I want to work up under there, and I am never going to do that probably. When I started, um, started my van build, I thought I was going to use a battery backpack thing like a Jackery or a Goal Zero. I thought that was going to be my plan. And then I was going to charge that via the cigarette lighter plug or just bringing it in the house and plugging it in or stopping at Starbucks or whatever. Well, I soon realized that the cigarette lighter wasn't going to charge this thing fast enough, so I wanted it to be charging all the time. So I bought a solar panel. I got it from Rich Solar from Amazon. Very nice solar panel. Uh, 100, 100 watts. And these battery backpacks don't need a charge controller. They have one built in. So all I had to do was run wires to this port and I'd be good. Except that I couldn't charge it and use it, which made it useless during the day. I'd either have to unplug it to use it. It just, it wasn't going to work. So fine. So I was in the middle of a trip and I stopped at um, Harbor Freight and bought a cheap AGM battery, just a 35 amp hour thing. Not sufficient for van life, but enough to get me through this trip I was on. So I had solar charging that 35 amp hour battery, and then I used the one that I had bought originally at night. I basically swapped systems, and that kind of worked. And then I realized that 100 watts of solar wasn't all that much, so I added another 100 watts, and then I thought, well, I better get a charge controller to do this properly, so I got a charge controller, and I got an MPPT. Anyway, I kept building and building and building the solar system, so now I have 200 watts going through an MPPT to two 35-amp-hour batteries, which are still way too small. 
and, but it works. So I'm not in a big hurry to change it. But I was kind of stupid because I really should have put in the split charge first. For 40 bucks, putting in a split charge relay will take care of my charging needs most of the time because I don't tend to sit in one place. I tend to drive for 10 hours and then park and then drive for another 10 hours or at least five hours a day long enough to charge those batteries. The solar is really great to have, especially on hot days, because the solar will power the refrigerator without even affecting the batteries. I mean, that's wonderful. But honestly, the solar is a luxury at this point. It was the split charge that I really needed. So get the split charge before the solar and then see if you actually need the solar. Here's a dumb one. I didn't use any of the fancy 3D software. What I did was I found the manufacturer's specifications for the van that they give to like RV makers. And I kind of use that as a template. And just in a paint program, I think I actually use Pixelmator for the Mac, I cut out the cabinets and the toilet and the things I was going to use and just made sure the scale was right because I had the measurements of everything and just pasted them on top. And I was able to figure out what would fit in the van and, and how things would look. And it, it actually worked pretty well. But I forgot the fridge. Yeah, I, I just completely forgot that I was going to have a fridge in there. And that's a pretty big thing to forget in such a small van. And I, I had no place to put it. So I bought a an Alpacool 15L chest fridge, 12-volt compressor. Love the fridge. I've reviewed it before. And I ended up just putting it on the floor. It, it's not on a cabinet. It's just sitting on the floor behind the passenger seat. And it turns out that's a great thing. It serves as a support for the bed at night. And during the day, it's like a quick, handy place to sit if I just want to sit down and do something. And I can also reach it from the driver's seat. Um, not while I'm driving, but if I'm stopped at a light, I can reach around and grab a soda, whatever. So that kind of worked out, but I really should have had a plan for where that fridge was going to go. And this one, this one kills me. I am just embarrassed as hell about this, but I'll tell you. I was installing kind of a pocket on the side of the van uh, made out of Velcro material the soft stuff. So I could, I have a lot of patches and I was going to put the patches on there. And it was a little tricky because, you know, the van's walls are single sheet of metal most of the time, but there were these support beams that were a little thicker. So I measured as carefully as I could and used that support beam for structure and drilled in and everything was great and secure. And I went outside the van and the screw went right through the side of the van. So on the side of my van now, I have a screw sticking out doesn't stick out very far, but man, I am embarrassed as hell at that. I treated it so it wouldn't rust. And again, it's an old beat up van, but uh, so, hey, if you're going to build a van, things are going to go wrong. You're going to screw up. It's okay. Just keep going and you will be fine. Even if you're going to be a little embarrassed from time to time. Okay, tech talk. Let's talk about propane tanks. There's actually a lot to talk about with propane tanks. First off is the decision whether or not you want to have propane. If you're coming from the RV world of, of the past anyway, I mean, that was always, of course, you're going to have propane. How else are you going to heat? How else are you going to cook? It was the standard way of, of creating heat in a van. Now with advances in batteries, some um, rigs are all electric, which is an interesting option. If you can afford that, that's a great thing, but it is very, very expensive. And um, some people are just doing without because you can get these cool little butane stoves now, and that might meet all your needs. But let's say you did decide to go with propane. There's, there's a few weird things about propane you need to know. 
Did you know that those refillable propane bottles you get, I'm sorry, the, the pre-filled ones, the ones you get out of the cage in front of Home Depot, whatever, do you know that they are not full? I just found this out recently. They don't fill them up. They're maybe 80% full. You are getting less gas if you do that than if you take your existing tank somewhere and have it filled up. So that's an interesting thing to know, but it's still a nice option to have because if you're in need, like you need propane, you know you can always go get one of those tanks. But be aware, and you can read the fine print there, that they're not full. You're always going to be better having somebody fill them. Also, for people who use the one-pound green cans, which is actually what I'm using right now for my uh, Olympian Wave 3 heater, they tend to be expensive. Walmart has the best price. Buy the four-packs at Walmart. That's the cheapest way to get them. But some people are, really, are very tempted to refill them. For about $7 on eBay, you can get an adapter where you can refill these one-pound cans. And uh, boy, you can save a lot of money doing that. Until you die. This is a, one of these controversial things that you mentioned on Facebook and everyone goes crazy. But here's the, the true facts about refilling these green one-pound cans. They're not designed to be refilled. These, these things flex. Every time a metal can is filled, it flexes. These are designed to flex once. Just once. Repeated stress from flexing is going to weaken them. The valves aren't very well made. The potential for them to leak is pretty high. And they have literally killed people, these refilled cans. Um, you can find that in Google. You can search. There was a, a young woman who was killed at a coffee kiosk because the refilled cans exploded. Also, it's illegal to transport these things if they're refilled. Now, people will say, oh, it's not illegal to refill them. All right, maybe not. But in the U.S., it is illegal to travel with a non-certified refilled tank. So, okay, you're going to save a couple bucks, but, but don't. And then you might say, oh, but, you know, recycling. I don't want to waste. I don't want to have all these cans um, that I have to keep throwing away. And, yeah, it does seem like a big waste. These are big, heavy metal cans, and you're going through maybe one a day in some cases. The solution for you is to get a refillable bottle. They make one-pound refillable bottles. They cost maybe 10, 20 bucks. Just use that. I mean, seriously, it, then you're, you're saving all that waste and it's safer. Or buy a actual propane tank that mounts to your van. So you can mount propane tanks to the bottom of your van. And I would always recommend that you have a certified plumber or propane technician do this because there are things you are not going to think about, such as vibration and corrosion and that connection where that pipe comes through the wall of your van. I know people installed them themselves. Well, hey, you know what? If you watch Combi Life, you can see one of the reasons that installing it yourself might not be a good idea. They did it. They didn't do a terrible job with it, but problems they had with it really messed up their trip. So there are some really clever options too. There are some spare tire shaped propane tanks where you can just replace your spare tire with a propane tank. But probably the easiest, simplest way to have propane in your van is to get one of the standard size tanks, build a box for it, and make sure it's vented down beneath in case there's any little leak. That's probably the best way to do propane. So that's enough tech talk for propane. There's certainly more to talk about. Um, I used to be a propane technician, so I, I do know a bit about this. If anyone has any specific questions about propane, I'm, I'm happy to answer them. But for now, hey, consider propane, consider its pros and cons, and do some research before you dive into it because you can hurt yourself with this. Okay, a product review. 
So in my van, I have installed wind deflectors on the side windows, uh, you know, in the cab. And these let you roll down the windows maybe an inch and you still have privacy and security because you can't really get your hand in there or anything. Which is great, and it allows a ton of airflow. It's the simplest, easiest way to ventilate your van. I highly recommend it. Most nights when I roll down those windows an inch, I don't have any condensation at all in the front window, so that's very good. But bugs? Mm, the bugs, the bugs don't care about that one inch because they're much smaller than that, and they will come in and visit you in the night. So that's a problem. So. I've been thinking of ways to do these little, kind of like make a piece of foam that acted like a screen that I could put in the window or something like that. But then I learned about these window sock things. So I, I bought some and I tried it out and I'll tell you my experience. Window socks are a big piece of flexible fabric that fits over your, your window, like right over the top of the door. And it will let air go through, but it won't let bugs go through. They don't take up very much space when you store them, and they're pretty easy to put on. Stealth factor, eh, they're kind of obvious. Um, they're, it's, you know, it's kind of a strange thing to see these black pieces of fabric on someone's door, but that's not that big of a deal if you're trying to like keep the bugs out. And I think the real thing with these is that it depends on the shape of your door. My NV200 has fairly large doors, and it is a struggle to get this, these things to fit exactly right. I think they're actually ideal for back doors. If you have a four-door vehicle, the back doors, these will fit much better on. That said, they do work. This is actually a viable solution. Um, they act as sunshades. They will keep bugs out. They do restrict the airflow a bit, but not that much. You're still getting some ventilation. And the best thing is they're easy on, easy off. You don't have to do any big modifications or spend a lot of money. So I'll have a link in the show notes. There's a number of companies that make these, but uh, window socks. So I'm going to jump in and do a little bit of Q&A Q here. I've gotten this question a few times now, and it, it boils down to this. Will this X car work as a camper, or will this van work as a camper? You know, people like specifics, like, oh, I've got a, a 2002 caravan. Can I use that as a camper? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care what kind of a car you have. Yes, you can use it as a camper. And the reason I'm saying that is because someone turned a smart car into a camper. Now, I actually had a smart car before this van, and I watched this video, and my jaw dropped. This woman, you can go, you, I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can look in YouTube and just search for smart car camper and you'll find it. This woman basically turned her smart car into a teardrop style of camper where you would fold down the back hatch and use that as the base for your kitchen. And then at night, she basically made a bed out of one side of the van, of, of the, uh, of the van. Yeah, no, of the smart car. And I thought, geez, I'm going to try this. And then I realized that I am literally taller than the inside of the entire smart car. If you've never driven a smart car, you have to understand that when you're sitting in the driver's seat, the, wind, the back window is a few inches from your head. You can easily reach back and touch the back window. There's not a lot of space in there. And me being six foot tall, I couldn't make it work. But it would work for somebody who was shorter. And this woman absolutely showed that it worked. Uh, my solution for the smart car in camping was I towed a trailer that was a camper. I towed a motorcycle trailer, a time-out easy camper, and that worked great. That, that, that was totally 
a good camping solution. It just was the time to, that it took to set up and take down was annoying, and I am much happier in a van. There are people who have turned just about every vehicle you can imagine into a camper, and they're all on YouTube. I have seen uh, pickup trucks turned into fancy campers, all manner of cars. Of course, Prius is a big, there's a whole Prius camping community of people who've turned their Prius into campers because Prius is one of the few vehicles that you can have air conditioning guaranteed in your camping vehicle. It has to do with the way the battery works and the engine works. Basically, you will the air conditioner runs off the battery, and that as the battery discharges during the night, it will start the engine and recharge itself. And you can sleep in there while that's happening. You just have to be careful to ventilate properly. I imagine other hybrids do that too, but, but Prius is definitely the biggest. That's pretty cool. With sedans, what I've seen some people do, like imagine a 1970s sedan. The back seat comes out, and so does the back of the back seat. So you can actually put a bed from the back seat that goes into the trunk. That gives you a ton of room. So the answer to the question, can this vehicle be a camper, is always yes. You just have to be creative. And there is so much help on YouTube for people who've been creative. Now, is it ideal? Well, that is a whole other subject. Last year, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in Maine. I basically drove, uh, started at the bottom east, the bottom... Um, Started at the bottom right, where all the people live in Maine, and then went all the way up to the top left, through all the woods and up into New Brunswick. And one of the places I stopped was pretty cool. Almost exactly in the middle of Maine, there's this place called Elephant Mountain. And that's that's in the part of Maine that's all mountains up there. So uh, you can find an, uh, a mountain named after anything you'd like. But this Elephant Mountain has a crash site on it. I'll tell you about it. In 1963, in January of 1963, a B-52 Stratofortress took off from Springfield, Massachusetts and was flying over Maine when the plane kind of fell apart in midair. There was a, a structural problem with these planes and this one suffered from it, sadly, and the plane crashed into the mountain. Uh, it was fairly tragic. It killed seven people. Uh, there were only two survivors one poor guy had to crawl out of there. I mean, so the story is pretty horrific. And you can you can read about it on Wikipedia, whatever. I'll have a link. Today, though, most of the plane, or at least much of the plane, is still there. And you can visit it. Now, it's kind of a strange place to go. It's in this part of the state that there aren't really any people living. So it's up on these logging roads. I wouldn't recommend doing it in the winter unless you had a snowmobile. But... You go up these logging roads, and you basically have to find it by geographical coordinates, which I will give you in the show notes. And when you get there, um, there's a parking area, and then you basically follow this trail up the mountain. It's not too steep. I, I am not in any good shape at all, and I was able to do it. And you find the woods are just littered with pieces of plain, big pieces of plain. And they cover acres and acres. It's just pieces of plain everywhere. Now, over the years, of course, people have taken things. So the engines are apparently gone. I couldn't find the engines. Heck, the Air Force probably took the engines. I don't know. But there are big sections that make the trip worthwhile. And there's a big memorial to the people that died in the crash and tell you about it. And there's a strict policy of you do not take anything. I like souvenirs. I took nothing from this site because this is actually, it's a grave site. Uh, it is, it's a memorial. But it's, it's really an unusual place to see in a beautiful part of Maine. I mean, this can be part of a, just a wonderful trip to Maine. 
So if you want to see what a B-52 crash looks like, check this out. And then afterwards, afterwards, after, I used to live in New England, and I say my words funny sometimes, afterwards, yes, afterwards, you can head up to Katahdin Ironworks, which you can take this really weird road to get to. There is a toll road in the middle of the woods and it's the funniest thing. You go up there and there's this like big rope across the road. And then there's a two story house. And on the top story of the house, there are people watching you. And so you, you get out of your vehicle and you go into their little house and you pay them. And it was like 10 bucks or 15 bucks. It was actually a decent amount of money. And they pull a string and the rope drops and then you can drive over it. And you might think, well, why am I going to pay 15 bucks to drive on a dirt road? through the forest. It's because if you look at the map, it's going to save you hours of driving. This part of Maine, the northwest section of Maine, does not have a lot of people and does not have a lot of roads. So, and it turns out it's um it's not really a toll road. It is it's a network of roads that are run by the logging companies. They don't want a lot of people on there that aren't associated with logging. So they'll let you on, but you got to pay. And there's a few different places you can get on. And uh, I'm looking up the prices right now, and actually, and if you don't live in Maine, it's $14 per day. And then if you want to camp, it's $12 to add on to that. So you can actually just camp out in the woods there, which is beautiful. But all this land is actually owned by the logging companies, or at least leased by them. Beautiful out there. Lots of wildlife. Very quiet. But just a little bit unusual. I've never been anywhere else in the United States that was quite, quite like this. If you want to learn more about the toll roads and such, um, I'll have links to that in the show notes. The area has a funny name. It's called Kai Joe Mary. Joe Mary is one of the checkpoints, and Kai, K-I, is short for Katahdin Ironworks. But uh, it's a very interesting place to visit. Great for van life. Make sure you have some provisions, but um, there are enough towns up there that, that you can resupply yourself without too much trouble. So that is the B-52 wreck of Elephant Mountain in Maine and Kai Joe Mary woodsy area. That's what I'm going to call it. Tales from the road. Well, this tale is actually quite fitting for this episode because it kind of combines a bunch of different things, uh, making mistakes and having determination and such. So this past Labor Day, uh, my wife and I decided to go out and go do some camping in Wisconsin. And my wife doesn't have that much free time. I was pretty excited about this. And I built my van for one person, so we decided to tow the trailer that I mentioned earlier, the, the timeout easy camper trailer. It's built for motorcycles. You're supposed to tow with a motorcycle, but it folds out into this actually quite large space where you have a queen-size bed and then a floor area with a table that you can use as a kitchen or whatever. There's nothing else in there. It's just a tent but um, it's plenty of space to sleep, so the thought was we'd use the van kind of as a kitchen area and we'd use the tent area as for sleeping and it would have worked great except that we didn't plan while we knew we had the time off what we didn't realize is that it's so busy in wisconsin at that time of year that you have to book for at least three nights to have a place to stay and we couldn't we didn't have that many nights and then when we decided it was worth it to book places for the three nights even though we only were staying two we found out you had to book for friday night and if you didn't stay they'd cancel your reservation and there was no way we could get up there in time for friday night so we said screw it and we just went and we were going to figure out where we were going to stay 
Well, what we found out is there was nowhere to stay. So we stealthed it, uh, even with the trailer, and we did not set up the tent because we couldn't have done that. So the problem was, how are we going to sleep in the back of this van that has a bed in back that's smaller than a twin and two people, two adults? Well, my wife is not the tallest person in the world, and the way I had the bed set up at that time was I had an ottoman that folded out into a bed, and then I had this folding pad from Ikea, a very thick folding pad, I mean, three inches of foam, on top, and I would fold out the bed and then put the pad on that, and it was fairly comfy. Well, I was looking and thought, and it's like, how tall are you? And she told me how tall she was, and then I was thinking about how wide the van was, and I thought, you know, you might be able to sleep across the front seats. And she loved this idea. My wife is a fairly adventurous person, and sleeping in unusual places is right up her alley. And so we took that pad, and we found a way to fit it across the front seats. You know, they're bucket seats. It's not, there's, there's a parking brake to deal with and a steering wheel and all that. We found a way to make it work, and she basically had her own private bedroom up front. I had my area in back. She had hers up front. And if we needed to use uh, toilet facilities, we parked at a rest area, and we could just go inside. It actually worked out really well, and that is now our standard way of using the van. Again, determination is really the thing you need to do van life. Money and skill and talent can be compensated for, to some degree. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode 17. I really appreciate you putting up with my being tardy. I'm in this weird situation where sometimes I'm working 12 hours a day and the phone doesn't stop ringing, etc. We will get it to work. Music is by Simon Wag, a.k.a. Sir Mooj, and this has been a product of the College of Curiosity. If you have a moment, please go ahead and rate the podcast on iTunes or Podbean or Pocket Cast or pocket fishermen or whatever the heck you can rate things on i would really appreciate it and until next week wash your hands stay indoors and have some fun